0: In 1921, there was a young man named André who was in the French Army, and he had volunteered to go to Morocco with 25 other soldiers on a mission to draw up a map of a very dangerous area of, of Morocco. One day after they were in Morocco, to André's surprise, they were all issued a gun with cartridges. Now, André had recently decided that he was a conscientious objector, A few years earlier he had met a German soldier by chance in the despair and horror of war in his hometown which was occupied by the enemy, the hated Germans, but this German soldier told Andre that he did not carry a gun or a bayonet, that he was a conscientious objector. Andre had never met one and he would not kill him or any of the French soldiers or citizens. Andre was stunned. Cautiously, they talked more over the next day or two. And the German soldier told Andre about his faith in Jesus Christ and his belief that a true Christian would kill no one. Andre invited him to his Christian youth gathering. And this German soldier came, and the French youth were rather stunned and shaken. But then they listened and they sang and prayed together and in the middle of that occupation and starvation and brutality they were a community. The German soldier said I'm often in danger when I'm in the lines but then I sing a hymn and I pray to God if he has decided to keep me alive he will. If not Soon thereafter, the German soldier was sent to the front, and Andre never heard from him again. But that enemy had converted Andre. Now, a few years later, in, in this mapping mission in the dangerous part of Morocco, here's Andre holding a gun and cartridges, which were issued to him. You see, he had told no one that he had decided to become a conscientious objector. So when his team went out in the morning, he left the gun and the cartridges behind. Later that day, as they were going about their work in the Moroccan desert, his lieutenant noticed that he was not carrying his weapon and asked him why. And Andre said, I'm a Christian and I, I cannot kill people. So it makes no sense for me to carry a gun. The lieutenant took Andre aside and was very kind to this wet-behind-the-ears soldier, but he was firm. You have endangered your comrades and me by your action. This is hostile territory. We could be attacked by robbers or dissidents or other hostiles at any moment. If you were going to make this decision you should have announced it openly to all of us before we came out here. For the rest of his life, Andre Trochmi said that what he learned from this experience was, it's important to declare your convictions and your belief earlier rather than later. We are tempted to delay to see how things will work out. It might be awkward. But Andre's word to us today is that whatever our Christian concern or conviction is, we should let it be be known as early as possible rather than as late as possible. And don't keep it to ourselves. Let others know. So greater harm and damage does not come to the whole community. As the the wise Rabbi Hillel wrote 2,000 years ago, when you face a decision, the real question is if not now, when? If you're not going to decide today, when are you going, when are you going to decide? How long will you wait? How long will you delay? When will you decide to decide? We live in a time and a society where clear proposals are suspect, where firm convictions are ridiculed, where public confessions of faith are discouraged because someone might be offended. What about you? That's That's my question for you this morning. What about you? If you can't be committed now, can you tell me when you will be? Can you even ask yourself that question? If not now, when? Are there areas of your life where you know in your bones and in your conscience that you should be making a decision at work, at school, with the neighbor, with children or parents, with spouse or best friends? How long will you delay facing up to the decision? We live in an age of great legalism, a new legalism, a legalism so pervasive and invasive that we hardly recognize it, a legalism of toleration. The most important principle, we are told repeatedly, above all other principles, beliefs, and convictions, is that we tolerate all other people, all other beliefs. Please don't offend anybody by espousing a firm belief that seems to exclude others. Learn to tolerate everything, except, of course, those people who don't tolerate everything which explains why many persons these days draw the line in a way that excludes saying, persons who declare definite beliefs should not be included in the larger discussion. We need to have an open, an open mind about this. Now, don't get upset, but uh, sometimes it seems to me that some Mennonites are more open to engaging Muslims, for instance, than engaging other Christians, especially if those Christians are perceived as being more conservative than they themselves are. I hear a lot of comments that sound as though Christian evangelicals are the enemy. Sounds sort of startling when you just say it out loud, really, doesn't it? So I recognize that I'm swimming upstream when I urge you to clarify the decisions that you face in your life and to declare them in front of others because the question never goes away, if not now, when. People like to say, what would Jesus do, and it's not a bad question really. What would Jesus do in this age and atmosphere? May I make a suggestion? I'd urge each of you to find time between now and Christmas to read the entire Gospel of Matthew in one sitting, in one reading. Read it aloud, if that helps, or choose one of the other Gospels, if you wish. But do it all at one time, as though though you were reading it to someone for the very first time. Let the whole story roll over you. One of the first things Jesus says is, I urge you to repent. Stop. Turn around in your tracks. Be forgiven and face in God's direction. Right there in chapter 3. The Jesus of the Gospels is outspoken. There are decisions to be made, make them now. Choose this day whom you will serve. Turn around, man. Get a grip. Granted, this is not a cardboard cutout, Jesus. He understands the mysteries of life. He speaks in parables a lot. He sees the ambiguities and the ironies, the poetry, the tearful distress, the unanswered questions. The gray areas seeming larger and stronger than the black and white. Yet over and over again, he calls us, sometimes when we don't recognize his voice, Sometimes when we are in the middle of a vehement denial, Jesus says, there are decisions to be made. No one who puts his hand to the plow and keeps looking back is fit for the the kingdom of heaven. So I ask you again, if, if not today, now, then when? In the second part of this sermon, I'm going to take a risk and share rather personally about several areas of decision-making that I've faced in my life. I'm sort of an old man, and so I'm looking back, so you can discount that. Not as an example for you, I've failed so much, but just to be vulnerable, as I'm encouraging you to be in your spirit this morning. The first area in which I keep needing to make decisions is the whole area of what belongs to me and what belongs to God. What's he talking about? What part of my time belongs to me and what part belongs to God? Does it all belong to God? Well, how does that work? What part of my accomplishments, my degrees, my promotions belong to me, and what part of them belongs to God? What part of my financial income and resources belongs to me, and what part belongs to God? Oh, well, I bet he's talking about tithing. For some of us, time is the hardest to discern. What does my use, how does my use of time, of my time, honor God? How does my Sunday go into Monday? For others of us, we may find it difficult to say that all of our accomplishments and awards and degrees and promotions really belong to God. No, not really. I mean, let's... For me personally, financial matters have required constant deciding. I confess up front that I have always believed in tithing and, as much as possible, giving well beyond the tithe if tithe is defined as 10% of your income. I remember in high school, some of us debated if we should be tithing our measly incomes when we're trying to save for college. Surely tithing could wait. My memory is that I always came back to the same question, even as a teenager. If I need to save for college and I postpone tithing, what won't postpone my giving in the future? Well, after we get our new house paid off, we'll start tithing. After we sell our business, we'll start tithing after I retire and have all my debts paid off, then then we can afford to tithe. But in this case, my own testimony is that I'm glad, it, I'm glad that I decided this matter early rather than later. Then you're going against the stream in a different way. There were years Phyllis and I went to the bank in late December to borrow in order to finish our giving. And of course, many of you know that we had very, very hard financial times 16 years ago. And when you're in the middle of a devastating Chapter 11 in that hell of an experience, you wonder, really, really, can we afford to give? a minimum of 10% in this terrible time. Again, I'm glad we decided early rather than putting it off. Phyllis's dad is gone. Her mother's not quite herself anymore. But the influence of their example, while they shared which they shared confidentially with us many years ago, and I'm going to share with you confidentially, makes my decision easier each time I think about it. The example of others strengthens us. They started at 10% earlier in their marriage and then added one-fourth of a percent every year until they exceeded 25% annually. They decided to decide in good years and in lean ones and that really spoke to me. The second area I'd like to talk about personally is words. Now you may want to turn this off, it may not mean anything to you, but I've often said that one of the themes of my life has been trying to live the simple life but failing momentarily. I could give you a lot of examples. In fact, I was authoring a book with that title and The examples kept changing, I just never published the book. Sounds weird to a lot of people, but I've tried to live by the motto, if you can find a simpler, smaller word, use it. I've practiced the discipline of this in my life and in my speech and in my writing. Very few people notice. And I've failed many times. But when I turned 65 last year, I told my family that I was going to indulge. What do you want to do? Well, I'm going to indulge. For a whole year, every week, I'm going to choose a larger word that I hear other people use, and I've never used to my knowledge. And uh, the rule was simple. I had to use the word in conversation when Phyllis was present, so I had a witness, (laughs) with at least one other person. Maybe I never told you, but uh, I married up. I'm just a little farm boy who grew up between Brunnerville and Lincoln, and though I'm the ninth generation in America on both my mother's and my father's side, no one in those previous generations had gone past eighth grade, and I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school. But Phyllis Pellman her dad's parents were both college grads and teachers and her uncles Hubert and Cal and Bill were much loved college professors. These people knew words and they all agreed that Merle Good had married up. (laughs) So here I am 65 and trying to improve my vocabulary. I thought I'd get a kick out of it. So Phyllis and I would be somewhere with one or more witnesses and unbeknownst to our friends I would try to work my word of the week into the conversation like, yeah, it looks like that's going to dissipate. And Phyllis could hardly keep a straight face. And if either of our daughters were around, they'd laugh and then say, Dad, is that your word of the week? So after a few weeks, I decided to stick with smaller, simpler words. And that has come to fruition. (laughs) I've always been aware that people who have more higher education tend to use larger and larger words as a way of separating themselves from the riffraff. The point is, what have you decided about nonconformity? In your own life, How do you choose not to be conformed to the current age? Or are you postponing those decisions? It's probably not words, it may be something totally different, but what is it? Are you refusing to think about it or can you even push it to the front of your mind? Okay, so we've highlighted not killing people, also the stewardship of time and talent and financial resource, and we've thought about not conforming to the current age. I think that's enough of my personal life. So in closing, my question to you is this. Is there an area in your life and thought about which you keep postponing decisions? Are there decisions about your relationship to others? Your willingness to take a stand at work or at school? Decisions about ethical dilemmas you face? Are you stressed about your level of stress and the anxieties that haunt your spirit? Are you struggling to be faithful when you know you should be? Are you postponing the most important decision of your life, just pushing it off, pushing it off? My encouragement to you this morning is to choose this day whom you intend to serve, and to not give in to the spirit of the age, to the hesitation, to the postponing, the delay. See the legalism of our day for what it is. The blurring of all lines and boundaries. Raising children in an atmosphere of, well, we're not really sure. There are decisions to be made. Ask for God's help. Ask for the support and wisdom of this congregation. Share your dilemmas and decisions with your small group, your supper club, your Sunday school class, your family. But please decide to decide today. Decide to follow Jesus. If not now, when?